If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Thursday, January the 16th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio here on the Stanford University campus is Army Lieutenant General Charles Hooper. General Hooper is the director of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency, and before I have him explain exactly what that is, I want to give you a little background on his very distinguished career. General Hooper was commissioned in 1979 out of West Point as an infantryman, and it might take me 40 minutes to list all that he's done in his 40 years of service to this nation, but a few highlights. General Hooper served in command and staff assignment in the U.S. Army Armor Center, the 25th Infantry Division, the 82nd Airborne Division, and the U.S. Army Recruiting Command. Among his posts, as he earned his stars, Defense Attaché to the People's Republic of China, Director of Strategy, Plans, and Programs, J-5, United States Africa Command, and Senior U.S. Defense Official, U.S. Defense Attaché, and Chief Office of Military Cooperation, U.S. Embassy, Cairo, Egypt. In all, General Hooper has 16 years of security cooperation, security assistance, and military attaché experience. General, welcome to the podcast. And the first and most obvious question, what are you doing here at the Hoover Institution in Stanford and Palo Alto on a rainy day? <laughs> well, good afternoon, Bill, and thank you so much for having me. And uh, so what I'm doing out here at the Hoover Institute in Stanford University is uh, uh, taking an opportunity to educate our young people, uh, our graduate students, and our military fellows mm-hmm. who are also here at Stanford on the nature of security assistance and security cooperation and the role that that plays both in our policy formulation, uh, national security policy formulation, and national security uh, policy execution. I think it's very important that our young people understand that. They don't often have an opportunity uh, to, uh, to be exposed to senior leaders, um, particularly from Washington and senior military leaders. And I think it's important they have an opportunity to hear what we have to say uh, from our own mouths as opposed to seeing it through the filter perhaps of media or something else. Right. Now, very simple terms, what is the Defense Security Cooperation Agency? What is the mission? And just tell me basically what the challenge is for it in this day and age. Okay. Uh, The Defense Security Cooperation Agency, uh, what I like to call the agency that does more and is known by fewer people than any other agency in Washington. We are the principal executive agents that is principally responsible uh, for the provision of security assistance and security cooperation. And what I mean by that is, uh, defense articles and services, weapons, planes, ships, tanks, mm-hmm. uh, the training that goes with those weapons, planes, ships, and tanks, and the education of international military officers and others for the Department of Defense and, and in fact, for uh, the United States government because we actually execute these programs on behalf of the State Department in the Department of Defense. So that's, uh, uh, that's our mission and that's what we do. Now, can you explain how it fits into the larger national defense strategy? Absolutely. Um, As you know, we have a wonderful uh, uh, national uh, security and national defense strategy, the national defense strategy uh, uh, formulated uh, by uh, 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 former Secretary James Mattis, who's right here at Stanford, uh, who was a real pleasure to see again. I saw you shake Um, hands with him yesterday. I I, I know him well. He he is still the boss. He has one more Um, star than you do. Yes, he he (laughs) does. Well, a lot more than that. He likes to be referred to as general and not secretary. Uh, Yes, he does, and and, uh, I always see him. um, You can use whatever title you like, but a leader uh, is how I see him. Um, And so so 
As you know, we have a national defense strategy that has three fundamental tenets or lines of effort. The first one is to increase the lethality of our force, and of course that's our principal focus, and that's why it's number one. The third is to improve the business practices of the Department of Defense, to make sure that we utilize uh, the people's money uh, and the resources that we are given by the people of the United States in an efficient and an effective manner. But that second uh, line of effort is defense, uh, strengthen alliances uh, and attract new partners. Um, the fundamental tenet and the foundation of our defense strategy is that uniquely American approach to defense posture, and that is the premise that by strengthening your allies and partners, you are by extension strengthening your own security position. And so the purpose of my agency uh, is to provide those defense articles and services, planes, ships, and tanks, training and education to strengthen the capabilities of our allies and partners and, by extension, strengthen our own security position. Now, you started out as an infantryman way, way back in the day. And I now did. here you are today. I imagine you probably didn't envision yourself being in this position, but how did you gravitate to it? Well, it, it, it's very interesting. I, I, uh, I started out... Uh, uh, in uh, 1975 at the United States Military Academy. I'm one of the few uh, graduates of the Military Academy from that era that is still on active duty. Um, and, uh, and so while I was there, uh, I uh, had the foresight uh, to uh, pick Chinese to study. Uh, so I studied Chinese language. Um, uh, I was I was actually dared to do it because there was an upperclassman that, uh, without knowing me, said, that's too hard for you, you'll fail. <laughs> uh, and I got mad like only a 17-year-old can get mad, uh, and I was determined that I was going to show him that I could do it. So I studied Chinese language and graduated from the military academy, served uh, very proudly as an infantryman. And then the Army had a program called the Foreign Area Officer Program, and that was a program... Uh, that trained young officers to develop a specialty in particular regions and countries of the world um, with an eye towards assisting our forces in understanding how best to approach security in that part of the world. Since I had studied Chinese, I was selected for the program, uh, was sent to graduate school to study, and, and uh, sent to later to Hong Kong and Beijing to study language and to study the Chinese. Uh, and through that, I gained an appreciation uh, for not only sometimes the postures and positions of our competitors, but the importance of working with our foreign allies and partners to have a collective defense against common threats. So that's where the interest came from. As you talked about, I've had a series of jobs and assignments that took me along a path of, uh, of being able to work uh, with allies and partners and work on policy issues uh, and I found that I was very interested in that, and, and that was a way I could serve. That was a way I could best serve, no different than many of our scholars uh, in the past, General Marshall and others, mm -hmm. uh, who had a quite a, a, a bit of a different path than perhaps some of the war fighters that are better known, like General Patton and others. So that's how I got into it. That's how I developed an interest in it. Um, and uh, I received a succession of assignments uh, that allowed me to participate in the policy formulation process and provide best military advice on how we could best strengthen our alliances and the capabilities of our partners. So that's kind of how I got into it. What was your favorite post? Oh, my goodness. That's a tough, that's a tough question. You liked them all. I liked them all. I, I honestly liked them all. And, and I believe, um, uh, either through providence or, or planning on my pride, I, part, I, I tend to think it's more providence and luck, mm -hmm. that I've had a succession of assignments that has prepared me for each, each follow-on assignment. And so... Uh, I was in a, a deputy military attaché to Beijing, and I served in the Office of the Secretary of Defense on China policy. That prepared me to be the defense attaché to China, and I enjoyed that job very much. I was there doing a very 
Uh, well, there's always uh, interesting times in Sino-U.S. relations, yes. uh, but uh, I had an opportunity to serve during the Olympics. There were earthquakes in Sichuan and some other things. Um, I enjoyed being the, uh, the director of strategy for Africa Command. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Because Africa, uh, the continent of Africa, is an area that is not, uh, I think, very well understood uh, by many people. They have a lot of preconceived notions. Um, but Africa is an area uh, that is a subject of an immense amount of tension from our com strategic competitors, China, Russia, and right. others. Seven of the ten fastest growing economies in the world are in Africa. So the opportunity to work on something that is that was esoteric, not understood by a lot of people, to explain it to a lot of people and to move that ball forward, uh, I really uh, enjoyed that challenge very much. Uh, but I would say being the director of DSCA, uh, has, is, has been the most fulfilling job I've had because I've had an opportunity um, um, with the convergence of uh, the national defense strategy, the, um, the conventional arms transfer policies that the administration has forwarded, and congressional prerogatives and imperatives. I've had a chance to work on, on ev evolving uh, security assistance and security cooperation to better support our policies, and I've enjoyed that very much. So one thing I like about this podcast, General, is I learned. And I learned a bit about military sales and doing a little homework on your agency. Sure. Here's what I found. The Security Assistance <coughs> Command manages approximately 6,000 foreign military sales cases valued at more than $200 billion. That's billion with a B, $200 billion. Mm -hmm. The command interfaces with 119 security cooperation offices worldwide, provide security assistance and military sales to more than 150 nations and international partners. How do you manage that? Ah, well, first and foremost, I have the most wonderful team of professionals, not only in Washington, D.C., where our headquarters is, mm -hmm. but around the world in our security cooperations offices, around the world in our embassies. So I have a one, number one, I have a wonderful team to do that. Number two, um, I have clear direction from our national leadership as to what our priorities are. And, and one of the advantages of this national defense strategy that we're talking about is, is that it is clear and unambiguous. And I will tell you, in the 16 or 17 years, as you said, that I've been doing this, I have never seen a time where there has been a clearer statement of our goals and objectives with respect to foreign policy and national security policy. I'd like you to walk me through a little process here. I found okay. one sale in particular. It interests me. This was Poland. Mm -hmm. Poland, which historically sits in a very difficult spot in Europe. It does. They get run over from the east. They get run over from the west. They are mm -hmm. obviously very paranoid about their position vis-a-vis -vis Russia right now. Mm -hmm. Last February, we completed a foreign military sale, FMS as you like to call it, mm -hmm. a foreign military sale valued at $400 million. That included 20 M142 high-mobility artillery rocket systems a year before that, there was a $4.6 billion FMS for a military sale for the purchase of Patriot Advanced Capability 3 mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. Walk me through how exactly this happens. Do the, do the polls look at a catalog of available U.S. technology? Do we suggest to them that here's what they might be interested in buying? Mm -hmm. How does this work out? Okay, and so I'll, I'll, give, you, uh, I'll give you the, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, abridged uh, version of that. Mm -hmm. But it's very, first thing I, first and foremost, I want to begin with this. Um, Weapon sales, arms sales for the United States are a policy function. And that's a very important point um, because it's not, it's not a function that's, that's geared towards receiving a profit or, or a function that's geared towards uh, any type of monetary or economic goal. 
Uh, it is a tool of policy. So the first step in this is that our national leadership decided, as you know, we have a very good relationship with the Polish government, and our national leadership decided that it was a policy objective to provide adequate defense articles to the government of Poland and the country of Poland. So that's the first step, and that's very important. Right, right. Okay? Um, now, let me walk you very quickly through the process of foreign military sales. Um, uh, the first step is uh, we go to the country and we listen to them to determine what their needs are. Okay? And, and we have a saying in my business, don't tell me what you want. Tell me what you want to do. Okay? And this gets to your, your comment about catalogs. So if you tell me what you want to do, what you perceive your defense requirements to be, I can lay out a range of options, some material, but also training education, institutional development that will help you achieve that goal. So let's talk about Patriots and uh, integrated air and missile defense, something that a lot of countries want naturally. Right. We've seen a proliferation of missiles around the world, and certainly Poland uh, is facing challenges, traditional challenges, as you, as you have said. So the Polish government expressed a desire for integrated air and missile defense. We, in working with our Polish colleagues, we determine what their requirements and needs are, and we determine that the Patriot missile system, one of our most advanced missile systems, best suited, but not our only, best suited Poland's requirements. Okay, so the step step one is uh, the Polish government formally request us to, well, if we were to buy a Patriot, how much would it cost? Okay, and one of the advantages of the American farm military sales process, I must say, is that our partners pay the same price we do, and we use the same acquisition and procurement system that our own forces use, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. So they ask us how much would it would be. We work through them, and we work with private industry to determine how much uh, what they're asking for is once we've determined what they need. Um, and then they come, once we've done that and they think that this is something that they can support with their budget, right. they come back and make a formal request for this equipment. Now, when this request is made, even though there's been overall policy approval to move forward with this, there are a number of things that happen in Washington and in the United States. First, we determine, are there any technologies that are sensitive? And we have an adjudication process. Obviously, there's continuous policy um, policy analysis to determine uh, what are the second and third order ramifications of providing the poles with air defense equipment. Will it antagonize or intimidate their, their principal adversaries or their neighbors right. in these types? So we're constantly doing that. Um, and then once that's done, then we work with private industry to determine the timeline, how long it would take, uh, and those things that would be necessary. Now, what distinguishes us from our strategic competitors is that we're not just selling them the equipment and leaving, okay? We pursue what we call a total package approach, which means we're interested not only in providing them with the equipment, but training, infrastructure development, education, and training and education, that's a distinction with a difference. Mm -hmm. um, uh, all of the holistic institutional and human resource development capabilities uh, that will help them to maximize the performance envelope of the equipment. And that distinguishes us from others. Uh, so we're, we're talking to them about all of this. Once that's done and once we have a package that we present to them, uh, we negotiate to make sure the package is something that they can afford. Um, um, and then once, they, once they've determined that they can afford it, they essentially sign a contract. Okay, with the United States government, mm -hmm. who becomes the interlocutor between them and whatever private U.S. company might be building the equipment. And then we just simply manage and monitor the timeline to provide them with the equipment upon, uh, on the agreed timeline that we have. 
um, and then we work with them to train them on how to use the equipment. Um, our colleagues at U.S. Army Europe and the European Command um, help to schedule exercises to help them to integrate that equipment into the overall defense of the West. Poland is a NATO ally. So uh, that's basically the process that we follow to provide somebody with equipment. Very good. Mm -hmm. Now, how do we make sure weapons don't fall in the hands of the bad guys? Okay. Now, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, we have a number of programs. Uh, number one, uh, once again, to reiterate, uh, the provisioning of weapons to foreign countries is a policy decision. Mm -hmm. So first of all, we have to determine whether it's in the best interest of the United States to provide these countries with weapons at all. And I, I assure you that is a very arduous uh, process that involves a number of actors in the interagency, the Congress, the White House, of course, the State Department, the Defense Department, sometimes the Department of Commerce, and, and our technical security agencies to ensure that we're not providing a capability that perhaps could be used inconsistent with American values mm -hmm. and objectives or against the United States. So that's the first line of defense. Right. The second line of defense is before we sell equipment to a country, they must agree to a regime of inspections, both periodic inspections and random inspections to ensure that the equipment is properly accounted for mm -hmm. and is being used consistent with our values. Is the system perfect? No. It's not perfect. But I will tell you two things. Number one, we are constantly in the process of improving the process, randomizing the checks and inspections. Um, I think we've been fairly successful in doing so. And number two, um, we are the only great power that places an emphasis on the appropriate use of our equipment and our weapons by the people we sell them to. So we're trying, and what, the others aren't. What happens uh, if during an inspection you sold 40 missiles and you can only find 38? Two are missing. Okay. There are ramifications for that, wh which can include a suspension of future sales of equipment until mm -hmm. such time as the country has accounted for the equipment that cannot be accounted for. Very good. Mm -hmm. Let's shift gears. I want to talk a bit about you and your career mm -hmm. and the point. Mm -hmm. uh, I have been to West Point once in my life, and mm -hmm. it was a very special trip. My father and I uh, drove through it on the way to uh, Hyde Park, mm -hmm. and uh, it was a summer day. It was a Friday afternoon, mm -hmm. and uh, it was just very quiet. It was August. Uh, it was not a session yet. Um, there had been thunderstorms all day, and there was still thunder in the area, and uh, you know this better than I do, but when thunder breaks around that area, it just kind of rolls down the Hudson River. Mm -hmm. uh, sounds a lot like cannon fire, actually. Mm -hmm. And then you walk around the campus, and you see buildings, and you see a lot of tradition. What moved me was going to the cemetery. And you go into that cemetery, and you see George Armstrong Custer, and you mm -hmm. see Norman Schwarzkopf, and you mm -hmm. see Ed White, the Apollo 1 astronaut, mm -hmm. and you think, my God, there's a lot of history here. Mm -hmm. What took you to West Point? Um, 19, it's 1975, and the country is, is in a Vietnam hangover. Yeah, absolutely. So the military is not the most popular. Not, not at all, and, and there were a lot of people that questioned my parents on why I would want to join the Army. I mean, mm -hmm. there was a lot of questioning on that. I, I first put on a uniform 60 days after we evacuated the embassy in Saigon, after the end of the Vietnam War. The answer to your question is service. It is quite simply. I come from a very patriotic family. Um, all of the, the men in my family, only because they, at that time the men had the opportunity, served going back to World War I, World did, War II, Korea. I grew up in uh, uh, New Jersey. I'm New Jersey. a proud citizen of the great sovereign state of New Jersey. Which member of Congress was your, uh, was your connection to West Point? Uh, um, actually, uh, oh my goodness, um, Jim Saxon. Jim Saxon, okay. Yes. 
okay, uh, was my congressman at that time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, so um, I wanted to serve. I wanted to serve something larger than myself. Um, as I said, my entire family had served. Everybody, I, everybody we knew had served in the military uh, or served their country. I come from a family of public servants. My father was a New York City fireman, mm -hmm. um, and my mother was a teacher. So service was, a, and I come from a family of teachers, all, the, all right. of them. So service was something that we took for granted, and so I wanted a good education. I'll be honest with you. I wanted a good education. Um, good educations are expensive. We were a working-class family. Um, and I saw this opportunity to go to, the, to go to the military academy, and I read this book when I was about 10 years old called Army Officers and What They Do. And I was fascinated by this book. So I applied. Um, I do remember uh, this was 1975, and I had the interview with my congressman mm -hmm. at day after Christmas, 1974. Uh, and uh, I walked in that office. There were like 25 kids in there. I was the only one in a suit. Uh, the only, this is 1975, sure. they all had jeans, long hair, I was the only one in a suit. And I remember he looked at me, he looked at my record, and he said, where do you want to go? <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, I might be on my first choice, and my, my classmates, I hate to hear this, but uh, my first choice was the Naval Academy. I said, Naval Academy is all full. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, And uh, he said, uh, where else do you want to go? I said, well, West Point, ab absolutely West Point. And so uh, to, your, to your point, uh, I didn't realize then the amazing opportunity that I had been given. I was grateful naturally and blessed and grateful. Uh, but when you drive up there, okay, uh, and I, and I want to uh, describe for your listeners, you know, you go up there the first day and you are thrown into an auditorium with your peers from high schools all over the country. From my, my first, uh, one of my first roommates was from Helena, Montana. I had never been west of the Mississippi River. And he came from a cattle ranch outside of Helena, Montana. So you, these kids are thrown together um, from all over the country, and you get to see the very best. And, and within a few weeks of basic training at the academy, they're forged into this, this beautiful group that represents the very best of America. Um, and so it was a great opportunity, a great blessing, and a privilege, and uh, it shaped my life. Uh, women at the time? Uh, women came. Actually, I'm in the last all-male class, mm -hmm. uh, the class of 1979. The women came. Uh, in the spring of, uh, of 1970, oh, excuse me, yeah, the spring-summer of 1976, we got to watch that. One of many transitions over the course of this long career that I've had an opportunity to watch. Uh, the, the walls did not crumble, um, and I count among my friends, uh, my close friends, uh, some of the distinguished graduates of the military academy that just happened to be female. Uh, what was the first time you saw the MacArthur speech? Oh, my goodness. Duty on our country. Duty on our country. Oh, they, well... I would say probably the summer that I got there. That's one of the things that uh, that they showed uh, was the speech by General MacArthur of duty, honor, country, and and you watch that and and to think that you are sharing an experience with with this tower of of, uh, of American strength um, and this hero of America was was something uh, something wonderful to behold. So I saw that speech and it resonated with me. And I looked at my, my clothes, and I'm wearing this gray uniform, the same gray uniform that he wore. Uh, it's a chilling moment. Now, John Paul Jones, rest in peace in the Navy Chapel at Annapolis, and yes. MacArthur, rest in peace in Norfolk, a Navy town. Norfolk, yes. This is really a curious thing. It is, it is. Uh, and, and, um, but if you read the history of that great man, he, was, he had some very particular ideas about what he wanted and how he lived his life and how he wanted to remember. Have you, have remember. you been to his grave? I have not. I have not been to his grave at uh, Sort at of a Norfolk. temple. <laughs> <laughs> at that, I don't think it would fit into West Point. No, he was, uh, um, 
He was a unique individual, but uh, one of the seminal soldiers in American history. I think this consideration went in with Grant as well. Yes. Right, because Grant obviously buried in, in the west side of New York, but you would think he'd be in West Point as well. You would, you would think so Think so as well. Um, but, you know, if you read his, uh, I, I love the uh, biography of his, um, he was such a humble man, um, Grant, a, a, very, a, a very amazing man. And um, I'm actually surprised that he allowed himself to be, um, to be honored on, uh, I guess it's off the West Side Highway or the East Side Highway right there. West Side, West Side Highway. Um, with a tomb at all because of his humility and, and uh, truly a, a, a humble public servant with a very interesting history. I'd, I'd uh, commend to everyone the biography that was done on him. I'm glad you said that. I think it is one of the great underrated biographies written by an American. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Uh, have you read Jim Mattis's book, by the way? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I saw him the other day. It's terrific. It just it reads like he talks. Yes, and I would tell you that uh, he he walks the walk. Yes. Okay, an exceptional leader. It was my deep, profound honor to have an opportunity to work with him and to have earned his trust. Uh, so everything you read in the book, um, he lives it every day. So 40 years in, does that put you at the front of the long gray line? Uh, it does. Uh, I have to be fair. I have one more classmate. Um, the, in fact, the chief of engineers, okay. the Corps of Engineers, uh, Lieutenant General Semini, but it does. It, I think we're the last two um, active duty uh, members of the Long Gray Line uh, that are still on. Uh, it's been a wonderful ride. I've had an opportunity to, um, uh, as you said, I came in during the, during the, uh, the Vietnam era. I was educated at West Point by the young officers of Colin Powell's generation, General Powell's generation, who vowed that they would never allow the Army to reach that point again. They would never go to war without the full support of the American people. Those were the people that educated me. Uh, I got to watch the revolution in military affairs, uh, where we moved from kinetics and mechanics to, uh, to code and information-based warfare. Uh, so all of this, all, these are all the things, and I've watched, and this is the most uh, wonderful thing, uh, I've watched the United States Army go from, uh, there were times in New York City when I was a cadet where I was, where wearing my uniform was hazardous, and people actually, there were times where people expressed in a negative fashion their attitudes towards the military right. directly to me. I, had, I got to watch that go from there all the way to uh, the Army and, and the military being one of the most revered, respected institutions in our country, and having people walk up to me in airports and train stations and, and thank me and others and my other comrades for our service. So I've, with my own eyes, I've, I've had the opportunity to watch that evolution take place, and it's wonderful. I think one thing the public doesn't fully understand or appreciate is that it's not just the United States Army, it's an army at war. Yes. And next year, that army will have been at war for 20 years. Yes. Unprecedented. Yes. Can you talk about what this does to an officer's corps when you have military engagement like this for a long period of time, what it does for morale, and what it does for keeping people in the service? Well, I I would tell you, and that's, in a sense, that's two separate questions. I would tell you, let me start with morale first. I would tell you morale um, has remained high, very high, Mm -hmm. um, um, because of the strong belief in our institutions, the strong belief in our values, the strong belief in our leadership and what we're fighting for. So the, the, the posture of the force, the morale of the force is very high. Um, and we're blessed with this wonderful military that when you ask them to go, even though they've been at war for over 20 years, they, right. they go. Um, having said that, uh, certainly um, it's, it's placed a strain on our families. 
Um, it, but having said that, we have developed mechanisms and support mechanisms for our families. Mm -hmm. um, the revolution in information technology has helped a little bit because now families can remain connected through FaceTime and, and social media and some other things. But it is an enormous strain on our families. And um, one of the things that as an American citizen that I remain concerned about is that we have an all-volunteer force. Um, they are called upon again and again, and, and an increasingly smaller percentage of the overall American population has volunteered to serve or, in fact, has much day-to-day -day exposure with people who do. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I do, I, I'm not going to be alarmed about it, but it is of concern to me that there are many people who simply are not have no first-hand knowledge of the enormous sacrifices our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and their families uh, make. Right. You'll see this if you ever go to a White House correspondence dinner. Mm -hmm. um, they play Armed Forces Melody at the Medley at the beginning of the uh, dinner, mm -hmm. and by tradition, members of Congress who serve in a particular branch stand up, so Coast Guard, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Army. Mm -hmm. um, I attended these back in the 1980s, and a lot of gentlemen stood up. Mm -hmm. Why? World War II generation was still in effect, Korea and Vietnam. Mm -hmm. You go to those dinners now, though, very few people standing up. Mm -hmm. and, and it's unfortunate. I, I um, But by the same token, you, you started this out by asking me why I'm here in Palo Alto, why I'm here at Stanford, uh, to let our young people see firsthand what their military leaders look like and, and to hear firsthand from them. I think it's terribly important that we increase uh, the contact and the exposure of our general population to our wonderful volunteer military. Uh, in 2007, uh, 13 years ago, the Army offered what it called a menu of incentives mm -hmm. to keep officers. They targeted mid-career officers, mm -hmm. captains, basically. Mm -hmm. They offered up to $35,000 in cash. They offered a choice of posting, a right. choice of special schools, three-year extension of active duty service obligation mm -hmm. to keep captains in. What has your experience taught you? Does the Army have the greatest challenge four to five years in when, say, you've served your West Point obligation? Mm -hmm. Does it come up at, say, 20 years when you can check out and have a pension and still have health benefits and all that? Mm -hmm. what, where do you think the tipping point well, is? Well, there are a number. That's a very good question. And, of course, it's, 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 it's very much dependent upon uh, the individual officer. It's mm -hmm. dependent upon the, the economy and other things. But generally, I'd say there are a couple of phase lines here. So... Um, for many young people, your first decision point comes at the end of your mandatory obligation, whether you're a West Point graduate or ROTC or others. You have a, a mandatory uh, period of service, and that's your first phase line. And so what are you looking at? You're looking at how many deployments you've had. You're looking at if you have a young family. Um, you're taking into account uh, the, the desires and opinions of your spouse, right. um, whether or not he or she wants to remain in, in this type of lifestyle. Um, so some of the factors are deployments, uh, children, uh, your spouse's intentions, and other things. The next, uh, the next uh, phase line comes at around the 10-year point. So at that point, uh, you've finished much of your company command. You're, you're, become a, you're on the cusp of becoming a field-grade officer, a major, something like that. Uh, maybe you've been offered graduate school, some other things. And then the calculus becomes, well, if I'm going to make my move, I should make my move now. You know, before, because once, uh, once I go over... 10 years or so, um, 20 years is, is, is uh, um, I'm eligible to retire in 20 years, how much money would I be leaving on the table? Right. And so, I mean, we're all human beings, and so see, these are some of the calculations. And of course, once again, the strain of deployments and other things. Um, the third phase line comes, as you said, at about the 20-year mark, where you say, okay, I've done my 20, uh, my 20 years, I'm eligible to retire. Um, 
I'm eligible to receive a pension now. I can, I'm still young enough to start a new life and move off. So these, these are the phase lines, and, and I'm only telling you that from my own personal experience. Now, what helps people across those phase lines? I mean, the same things that keep people in other professions. Job satisfaction, a sense of duty. Uh, to your country and a sense of, of obligation and service to your country. The fact that we genuinely enjoy what we do despite all of the hardships, despite all of the sacrifices, um, the privilege of leading young men and women, the privilege of contributing to something larger than yourself, sometimes is sufficient to, to overcome some of the other factors. Mm -hmm. and, this, and, and I have to say, um, for our spouses and families as well, uh, and as someone who's done this for 40 years, it's a good life. Um, you, you have an opportunity to travel and see things. I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, in my heart, I'll always be a kid, a blue-collar kid from New Jersey, but I've had an opportunity to, uh, to stand on the Great Wall of China. I've I'm an, I had an opportunity to sit at the foot of Mount Kenya. I lived in Cairo where I, every morning I woke up and went to my office in the Nile River was right there. I could see the pyramids from my office. So, I mean, and, and I've had a chance to serve and defend my nation, something I'm passionate about, and all of us are passionate about. So those are some of the considerations that, that go into it. Incentives help, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and and, and, and uh, in 2007, and as a matter of fact, I was teaching out at the Naval Postgraduate School right down here in Monterey, California. We had a large number of officers coming right out of theater, Afghanistan and Iraq, going right. to grad school and these types of things. Um, and, and I will tell you, yes, these incentives help, but ultimately the decision comes down to whether or not it, it's a personal and a professional decision, whether or not the officer's family uh, is, is happy and satisfied in the lifestyle and whether the officer uh, still feels as if he is being fulfilled uh, and his obligation to duty and his, his dedication to the profession is still sound, I think. The incentives help. But, um, but I think the, dis the decision point comes down to those two factors. Let's talk a bit about the intersection between academics and military career. Mm -hmm. We have a program here at the Hoover Institution, mm -hmm. National Security Fellows. Mm -hmm. Remarkable men and women who come through that program. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of the things I really enjoy about being here. Many, many years ago, mm -hmm. next to my office, across the street here, uh, very earnest young lieutenant colonel set up shop. His name was H.R. McMaster. Mm -hmm. Years later, I know that guy. <laughs> Watch him rise up. But there have been a lot of McMasters coming through here. Mm -hmm. They're all just really remarkably bright, gifted people. Mm -hmm. In your estimation, spending a year on the Stanford campus doing Monterey, mm -hmm. what does this do for an officer? Um, it's it's absolutely essential. There's there's uh, there th to be a leader, um, a military leader in the in the United States Army, uh, you have to be a scholar. Mm -hmm. You have to be a scholar because democracy requires a full understanding of the information, the history, the facts of the case so that you can make an informed decision. Uh, talk about scholarship because Jim Mattis is, in some respects, a yes. scholar, but he's a self, he's a reader. Yes. He always says, read books, that's how you learn. Yes. Um, so is it a combination of reading and being instructed? Uh, yes, I think so. I mean, uh, uh, the being instructed and the opportunity for fellowships like this and for myself, my war college was a fellowship at the Weatherhead Center at Harvard University. So I had a very similar experience to the fellows here. Um, what's most important about that and, and, and to call a misperception about military leaders is the ability to learn not what to think, but how to think. So that's, that's some, and, and the exposure 
uh, to other aspects of society, academia, and government that you have op those opportunities you have here at places like Stanford and Harvard and others. But right. that's not exclusive. The reading and the professional reading that that Secretary Mattis and his his famous library. Right. Um, but but Secretary Mattis is is one of many in a long line of of scholar soldiers, going back to General Washington who amassed a library. George C. Marshall, who amassed a library, a uh, very unknown officer who mentored most of the senior leaders uh, during World War II, General Fox Connor, uh, who had an extensive library and who mentored Marshall, uh, Eisenhower, Patton, um, um, Courtney Hodges. Most of the major senior military leaders of World War II were mentored by Fox Connor and took advantage. And he had a rule: you could go in the commander's house and take any book out of his library you wanted. So it's that combination of instruction exposure um, and reading uh, that helps a, an American military officer to be the soldier scholar he must be to serve in a democracy. Mm -hmm. So 40 years in, how much longer do you want to go? <laughs> I serve at the pleasure of the president of my country. I'm naive to this, though. Do you uh, do you have a term for service right now? Do you? Well, no. Well, uh, the um, uh, the mandatory uh, uh, retirement age is 65. 65. Um, but so you're three, three years away from three, that. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but I would tell you that uh, there's been a movement. You talked about some of the incentives in 07. There's been a realization that um, um, 20 years for, for many years, 20 years was the benchmark for eligible to retire. Um, but many of us and many of our many of our senior leaders and our strategic leaders have the ability to serve far beyond, and they're just hitting their stride right. at 20 years. And so, um, in the last, excuse me, in the last 25 years or so, there's been a recognition that um, we're letting a lot of talent go early, and there have been provisions made to allow many of our strategic leaders from colonel up to stay longer than uh, than the traditional time. So. I've enjoyed every minute of it. It's gone by faster than I could have possibly imagined. Um, and uh, I'm in no hurry to give it up. So final question here. What do you see as the future of security cooperation with our allies and partners? What advice would you impart for future leaders in this community? Okay. Um, the, answer to, the short answer to your question is I think that uh, there's a bright future for security assistance and security cooperation. And I would say, um, as I mentioned earlier, this uniquely American approach uh, to security uh, which d is dependent upon relationships uh, with allies and partners um, is destined to be the way of the future. Um, it'll be the way that we will ensure that we can protect those uh, those countries with whom we share a common view of the world, a common view of the future. Um, and I think the future is bright for that. And I think the United States um, will remain the partner of choice. Certainly, the competition is getting more fierce uh, among from from our strategic competitors. But I do, I, as you said, I have relations with over 150 countries. There isn't a country on the planet that wouldn't rather do business with the United States than someone else. Mm -hmm. So as far as advice, um, I have advice for the young people here at Stanford. Two pieces of advice. Number one, um, you're in this wonderful school. You have a wonderful opportunity, and I'm sure your individual future is bright. But give some thought uh, to service to your community, service to your nation. Because as Americans, when we work together to make America better, we all benefit, uh, and that's when we're at our best. Okay. My second uh, piece of advice is that values matter. Loyalty, integrity, mutual respect for each other, courtesy, humility. These are all the lubricants that help a democracy to function at its best. 
So be kind to each other, have values, live values, uh, and our country will continue to be the best in the world. What did MacArthur say of old soldiers? What? Fade away? They fade away, indeed. And, uh, and uh, they should fade away. I, was, I told the class yesterday, one of my favorite songs in the world is in the movie White Christmas. There's a song by Irving Berlin called, What Do You Do With a General When He Stops Being a General? And they talk about, the, you know, uh, he comes home and they festoon him with medals and then the, the rest of the song goes and, and the next day someone hollers when he comes into view, here comes the general and they all say, General who? We're delighted that he came, but we can't recall his name. Uh, and that's what an American general is supposed to do, and that's what I will do when my time comes. I worked for a governor who liked to joke that the first day he left office, the problem was he suffered what he called staff deprivation. <laughs> <laughs> he said you go out in the driveway and you get in the back seat of your car and you say, hit it. <laughs> and nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> but that is a good question. Not that you're dying, not that you're fading away yet, mm -hmm. but how would you like to be remembered for your service? What's your legacy? I want to be remembered as someone, if I'm remembered at all, as someone who tried to leave everything he touched better than he found it. Um, and as someone who touched not only, you know, they say, and a wise mentor of mine said, nobody remembers the last memo you wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're remembered at all, it's because of the lives you touched in a positive way. Um, and if I'm remembered at all, I want to be remembered as someone who loved this country, served his country, and positively touched some lives along the way. General Hooper, I enjoyed the conversation. On behalf of everyone here at the Hoover Institution, thank you for your service. Thank you so much, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.